Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zalmer for AJHP Voices. I'm speaking with two of a large team of authors of the paper, National Trends in Prescription Drug Expenditures and Projections for 2019. With me is Glenn Schumach of the College of Pharmacy, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Lever Mullen with the Colleges of Medicine and Pharmacy, University of Kentucky. Glenn, let me uh, start with you with uh, a point about the study. You point out that there are three components to year-over-year changes in drug expenditures, uh, price changes, of course, utilization changes, and the marketing of new products, and that the weight of each component varies by market sector. For 2018, how did these components stack up for the non-federal hospitals and the clinic sectors? Yeah, um, well, thank you for that question. You can see the growth in expenditures in clinics um, in, in 2018 was driven by increased utilization of existing uh, agents for the most part and to a lesser extent new products, while prices actually had a downward impact on spending. So while we talk a lot about drug prices, at least um, in clinics, uh, we found that prices uh, had a more of a downward impact on spending, whereas the increase in spending was mostly attributed to increased utilization of existing agents and, again, lesser uh, to a lesser extent, the use of new products. The hospital um, environment was similar. Those Again, those three factors um, had, had approximately the same uh, effects, except in this case, uh, there was a little more equipoise between um, utilization and new products where, uh, again, prices uh, had a downward impact. Um, but this type of analysis can help practitioners target cost savings interventions because if you know um, what's driving the increase in utilization or increase in spending, um, you can target your interventions to focus on that particular thing. So one example of this might be if you look at injectables and non-injectables in hospitals, um, they really had a different pattern than we saw in uh, most of the other um, categories we looked at. And in this case, um, price had more of an impact on spending, um, whereas utilization um, had a, a lesser impact. So, an F, uh, so, for example, a targeted intervention to reduce ut utilization um, of non-injectables in the hospital setting might have less impact than something that was focused more on price or on the use of new products. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, Glenn, the, uh, the 2019 edition of this series is, again, immensely rich in information that could uh, easily overwhelm someone who tries to digest it all in one sitting. Do you have any advice for a practice leader who wants to use this article effectively and, and efficiently as an aid in drug budgeting? So, yes, the paper uh, is really quite comprehensive. It has a lot of material there. Um, However, I think depending on, on how you use the paper, um, you can focus on particular information or data. So some 
readers, I think, are interested in specific pieces of information, um, and they can be very targeted in their approach. Um, many readers, readers, of course, use the paper to develop their drug budgets in their own institutions. And uh, obviously, for these, I think a, a little bit deeper dive is necessary. We um, hope that readers will not um, just turn to the forecasted percent increases and then use those as a multiplier to calculate their budget. Um, your hospital, your clinic is not the same as the national average, and you have a very different historical pattern uh, of drug expenditures, patient mix, medical staff, purchasing contracts, pharmacy staff, and many other things that impact uh, your spending of drugs and um, therefore need to be considered in developing an accurate budget. So I think the ideal approach is to um, go through the paper and see if it's possible to replicate what we do on a national level in your own institution. Um, of course, you know, to, to do an accurate budget, you need to take that um, uh, uh, kind of degree of effort. But I think short of that, reading the major sections of the paper, considering the differences uh, at your side, and then trying to estimate the impact of those differences on your budget might be um, efficient and effective way to use the paper. We hear a lot from uh, residency programs around the country that say, you know, we once once a year uh, we'll we'll get a group of residents together as a in a seminar format and and use it to just talk about and think about uh, the role of expenditures and in, in in running a health system pharmacy. And I think that's another good use for it. One thing to comment on we probably haven't yet is that every year we also have a supplemental piece. So when you look at the manuscript and the pa uh, the paper and you you see this you know 16 page document. Keep in mind that online there's another five or six pages of content, so it's really even more overwhelming than it looks in the in the published paper. But there's a lot of really good detail in that supplemental material as well. Yeah, very good. Well, Lee, um, some readers are going to be particularly interested in trends and projections related to specialty drugs. Now, the definition of this category of pharmaceuticals uh, seems to become further refined with the passage of time. Uh, how are specialty drugs defined for purposes of your study? No, it's a good question, especially given the, the wide range of definitions that you kind of see in the literature and the, you hear in presentations. And um, and and we, uh, we've we always relied on IQVIA, or what used to be called IMS Health, and their new name over the last couple of years has emerged as IQVIA. They have their own definition. We use their data, and they have their own definition um, of, of specialty pharmacy for purposes of compiling their data. And, and it's actually fairly complicated. In our paper this year, we've outlined exactly how they define it, and they um, they look at at especially products as those that are used to treat rare or uh, un, uh, or complex diseases that satisfy one uh, four of of a, of a set of seven different criteria. Uh, whether the, and and they they range from being initiated by and maintained by a specialist provider. Uh, they comment that it, it's general they're generally injectables, but not exclusively. Uh, something that has uh, requires some special level of care in terms of the chain of custody in the supply chain side, um, whether it's uh, $6,000 a year or more in total cost of care. And that's fairly arbitrary number that they assign, but it's the financial threshold defining specialty, something that requires unique distribution or in-depth monitoring or special reimbursement assistance. So if there's if there's a product that meets four of those seven criteria, then IQVIA will determine that to be specialty, and that's how we've included it in our data analysis, looking at uh, at a wide range of phenomena having to do with uh, trends in specialty pharmacy. 
Okay. Well, uh, you report that nearly 46% of drug expenditures in 2018 uh, were for specialty drugs for a total of almost $218 billion. Now, among market sectors, uh, mail order was quite large. 43% of specialty drug expenditures were through mail order pharmacy. Uh, At first blush, the mail order percentage might seem surprisingly high. Could you comment on that? Yeah, it is, it, it is high, and it, it it actually surprised me that it was as high as it was, and that's really in contrast to uh, about 29% that are especially products that are distributed through physician offices and clinics, and then only 15% through retail pharmacies, probably a lot on the oral side for those those retail pharmacy uh, dispenses. Um, you know, when we look at that mail-order channel, you know, it, it it does seem, though, consistent with practices that we're seeing today around directed distribution that are often driven by manufacturers and insurance provider policies that continue to leverage mail order to deliver those products directly to patients so that they can then be taken in in that kind of brown bagging process to infusion centers or their their local providers to have have them uh, administered. Uh, and so there's, there's really an awful lot of financial uh, uh, phenomena driving that decision to, um, to to use mail order, and it, it really, unfortunately, it's it's introducing that uh, you know a continued substantial fragmentation of the care we're delivering to patients who require specialty products, and it it is a very substantial concern, I think, for most of us in in health systems that are are struggling with with caring for these patients. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned fragmentation, and I guess that's. Uh one of the factors, uh, among others, that are causing a lot of health systems to uh, look into or actually establishing their own specialty pharmacies. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you see the distribution of expenditures for specialty drugs playing out in the years ahead, given this factor? Yeah, this is a a really an important uh, concern for health system pharmacy. You know, there are a lot of of barriers to entry for a health system to to, to open a specialty pharmacy. You know, the facility needs, the personnel needs to successfully operate a specialty pharmacy are really substantial. Uh, And and health systems have to have built in, uh, probably before they try uh, to move into specialty pharmacy, they have to have a good outpatient pharmacy structure, a good infusion structure, to make that that program work, you know the the contracting challenges though, uh, arguing and 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 fighting for uh, the ability to provide specialty services with with both manufacturers who have just you know d- uh, directed distribution policies and insurance uh, uh, carriers who will often require specialty certification, which is a huge challenge uh, to achieve. Um, unfortunately, I think it it really has. Has limited uh, the 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 development of specialty pharmacy within health systems to academic centers and large multi-center uh, uh, systems uh, that have the ability to put those resources in. With that said, I mean, if once a health system has done it, uh, has put a specialty pharmacy program in, most are finding substantial financial benefits. And those are really falling into two different categories, right? One is uh, just frankly being lucrative uh, in terms of dispensing and providing specialty services. A lot of there, there is today a substantial amount of money to be made in that specialty world. But the other side of it is really important. And even if we didn't have a lucrative reimbursement structure for specialty pharmacy, 
the reality of us moving into a a world of uh, a value-based care suggests that as we as we provide care for these really complicated patients we're going to be at risk for a lot of their outcomes for so as we fragment that care through specialty pharmacy today using commercial or you know, outside vendors for specialty provision, uh, if we're able to bring that back into the health system where we're providing all the other care for these complicated patients, we're going to be able to care for them in a much more efficient, not necessarily inexpensively, but the total cost of care, I would argue, will drop if we defragment the care delivery and we, we provide continuity uh, between their inpatient needs, their ambulatory care needs, and their specialty pharmacy needs, I think that's really going to be the direction we go in. And I think as 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 we continue to move down this road of of, of focusing on a value-based uh, structure of our healthcare financing, it will become more and more lucrative uh, and beneficial to health systems to move in this direction. Mm-hmm. Lee, uh, let's talk about biosimilars for a moment. Uh, the market penetration of biosimilars in the U.S. is substantially lower than in Europe. What explains that, and is this likely to change in the near term? Well, that's uh, that's a, a good question as it relates to the differences between us and let's say the European Union, where we where uh, where the regulators uh, came to consensus around issues having to do with the development of biosimilars, their review and approval, their distribution, their guidelines for use. The EU really came up with some very clear and deliberate regulatory action far sooner than we did. We were incredibly slow here in the U.S. to develop those regulatory standards. We spent we spent years arguing just about how we were going to, what we we're going to call these products, how we were going to label them uh, in their naming, uh, and and that was uh, I would argue was driven a lot by pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical manufacturers that are involved in the, the developing and marketing the innovator products. They were not on, and under any uh, uh, in, they didn't have any very much interest in. In moving that policy debate forward, and I think that slowed things down substantially. We're continuing to see uh, emerging uh, trends around the, 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 as we do with, with say, conventional uh, generic medications, an awful lot of activity from the pharmaceutical manufacturers to slow down the diffusion of these products into uh, clinical care. Uh, there's there's a bit of, uh, you know, fake news even being spread about these products that, uh, about biosimilars, uh, that they're that they're not safe, that they're not effective, uh, being spread largely, I would argue, by the pharmaceutical manufacturers that do the innovator products to keep the diffusion uh, low and slow. I think there's there's some material that we're bringing out in the 2020 ASHP pharmacy forecast this year that's going to explore these issues uh, a bit uh, as well. So in, in uh, next January, when that forecast is published, we'll have some more content to discuss around that and perhaps some recommendations for how we might move forward. Sure. Bill, let okay. me uh, just add on maybe the positive side. Um, there's a recent announcement by the FDA um, that they're um, publishing some policies that would allow insulins to um, be approved um, through the biosimilar track. So, of course, that's a, a category of drugs that's been problematic in terms of costs, um, been on the top um, top 25 list. Uh, several products in that um, top 25 list. It's um, something that really impacts patients and um, and payers. Um, so that that's positive news. And I think also recently, 
trastuzumab was approved um, as a biosimilar, which is, of course, an expensive uh, and important uh, uh, breast cancer treatment. Um, so, you know, hopefully um, over time we'll see some some movement in this area. Sure. Well, we're we're touching now on uh, therapeutic category uh, a little bit and the, the effects there. Um, and I know you looked at this uh, quite extensively in your study uh, in relation to expenditures in 2018. Uh, what are the key takeaways regarding trends and project projections with respect to therapeutic category? Lee, you yeah, want to start we... with that? Yeah, we, we, we spend a lot of time focusing on the categories, the therapeutic categories, because in, when you look at, uh, non-federal hospitals, over 91st, 95% of our total expenditures are represented in just the top 25 categories. So as health systems look for opportunities for cost containment and safety and quality improvement, this list of therapeutic categories is a really a, a great place to start as, as a compass guiding interventions that, that we might take to, to make improvements. Um, just looking at the, the, the 2018 list, top 25 therapeutic categories, as in most years, antinea plastics are really at the very top. Um, hemostatic modifiers are, again, at the top for 2018 as well. We saw uh, several categories that saw big gains from 2017 to 18. Uh, neurologics, immunologic agents, contraceptives, hormonal products all made substantial gains from, uh, from year on year uh, in that, at that categoric level. On the downside, those that are kind of losing ground, GI medications, anti-infectives, uh, cardiovascular agents declined year on year, uh, as did while their number two hemostatic modifiers did decline uh, uh, from 17 to 18, uh, despite being very still very uh, very substantial component of our of our total total spend. You know, when you look at the categories, you know, some of the changes are driven by the launch of, of individual new products. Um, but in most cases, there's many factors that drive those those trends. Um, as Glenn mentioned earlier, you know, changes in, in, in price that are often driven by shortages or manufacturer pricing strategies are, are some things that push that uh, those categoric levels higher or lower. Uh, branded generic changes and other you know utilization patterns will will, will make a big impact. Um, it appears for 2018, and I would argue probably going into the next several years that you know cancer care is going to continue to drive expenditure patterns at that categoric level, um, and and it's really an area where 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 health system pharmacy should be and probably is today focusing a lot of attention, as with an effective use and a coagulant care and so forth, where uh, where there's an awful lot of of, of spend uh, happening. And I think particularly moving forward, as we saw the neuro the neurologic agents that uh, that's really where we're seeing uh, some of the meds that are used to manage the opioid uh, crisis today that are landing in the therapeutic area. So um, it's quite a bit of opportunity in that top 25 category list to uh, to focus on in the next couple, uh, next year and, and beyond. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, uh, Glenn, let me uh, ask you to comment on this point. Uh, uh, your study uh, looks extensively at new products that are likely to be marketed in 2019 and the related impact on expenditures. Uh, what would you say the key takeaways are here? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, yeah, it's an important part of the paper. Um, and this year, we had the great benefit of collaborating with a company called IPD Analytics, and they provided us with pipeline information on, on likely new drug approvals. And um, that company and in in that pipeline database is referenced in the paper. 
Um, and I would encourage people, uh, if they want more information on drugs that are not listed in our paper, to, to use that pipeline. What we try to do is select from um, that pipeline, that more comprehensive uh, pipeline, the drugs that we think will have the greatest impact on expenditures in hospitals and clinics specifically. Um, so um, about half of the drugs uh, in our uh, paper that, that we discuss are specialty drugs, which kind of re-emphasizes the discussion we had earlier about the growing importance of that category of medications. And of course, those tend to be uh, very expensive. Um, these, uh, the drugs that are that are uh, expected to be approved in uh, 2019 that will, or 2000 and um, yeah, 2019 that will impact spending include novel um, immunotherapy agents um, for um, things like peanut allergies, multiple sclerosis, uh, plaque psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, again, all of these will be uh, likely be high priced. And there's also some drugs on the list for very rare diseases, but because they will have uh, probably enormous price tags, we also included them. Uh, and in particular, a hospital that might have patients um, or serve patients in a particular category of disease, uh, maybe have specialty clinics or special um, uh, group of physicians that focus in a particular area, um, then you obviously want to focus on drugs coming out in that category. There's also a lot of new cancer drugs on the list, um, important new agents for AML and bladder cancer in particular um, that we discuss in the paper. There's um, also potentially important products, um, a new injectable antibiotic and another uh, acute migraine treatment um, agent. Um, and um, we know that those have been uh, successful categories and of course antibiotics, um, we clearly need more in that area. And then I think last um, uh, drug I'll mention is a ketamine-based nasal dosage form for treatment of treatment-resistant depression, which probably also has a potential wide utilization. So again, I recommend um, that um, readers uh, look through the um, drugs that we discussed in the paper and kind of t target those that they think will be used in their own institution. Sure. Yeah. You know, your paper does a nice job of um, showing that uh, the rate of annual increases in expenditures um, seem to have settled to a relatively low level between the years uh, 2008 and 2012, and then began rising rather sharply. Glenn, uh, what explains that? Yeah, that's something that um, I think the most obvious uh, reason for the period of low growth was the financial recession that really started in 2007, 2008. Um, um, and again, you, that, that recession is um, widely attributed to the drop in, in growth in healthcare expenditures during that time period. Um, it's really a good illustration of the impact of the overall financial market on healthcare spending. And while we tend to focus on a lot of different, maybe micro level things that um, we feel might be important to drug spending um, or projecting drug spending, uh, these macro um, level factors really um, need to always be considered because they really have the most impact. Um, right. And then the rise in spending that occurred in 2013 and, and has continued um, since then, basically, although it's, it's um, 
it's gone up and down a little bit, but um, that's really um, attributed to two things. I think one is the rebound of the economy, and um, the second is the impact of the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act, of course, greatly expanded the number of people who had access to health insurance and therefore could afford pharmaceuticals. So in our paper, um, a lot of that increase in growth that, that you see is is likely due to um, the expansion of the number of people who had access to pharmaceuticals. Now, whether that um, continues um, into the future is another question. Yeah, well, very interesting, uh, your your focus on the external economic environment and the big impact that can have. Important point. Okay, well, uh, gentlemen, as we draw our conversation to a close here, um, I would just like to ask uh, any final thoughts you would like to share with listeners about trends and projections in drug expenditures. Len, you want to kick this off? Sure. Um, well, I mean, we've we've been doing this for a long time. Um, um, obviously, um, it's something that um, will continue to be a, an important topic for um, hospital health system pharmacists. Um, a lot of what we do revolves around um, the pharmaceutical product and how do we um, make it more efficient and effective for our patients and for our, um, our um, organizations. Um, so one thing I would like to um, ask readers is that the paper that we do, um, you know, we do our best to try to make it useful. But if there's things that readers uh, feel would, would be good additions or improvements to the paper that would um, strengthen or, or make the paper more effective in terms of um, how it's used by a health system pharmacists and whether it's in budgeting or um, anything else related to uh, pharmaceutical expenditures. We're more, more than happy and um, interested in having those suggestions um, conveyed to us, so don't hesitate to contact us with, with those kinds of suggestions. Sure. Lee, what would you add? Yeah, I just uh, would like to recognize uh, we've, this is a this is a substantial amount of effort every year for this for a team of people. It's not just Glenn and I. There's uh, an increasing in fact this year an increased number of authors. We we recruited uh, four or five new people to join our team. This is a a huge team effort, and I really need to recognize the other authors that are involved in putting this together every year. And also want to need to recognize Acuvia. Uh, none of this would really be possible, at least not at this level of, of detail and and, and this uh, level of, of of richness of analysis. If it weren't for Acuvia and their very generous uh, provision of data, we get an enormous amount of data and and analysis from Acuvia, and it really does make this paper possible. So just want to recognize those groups and and uh, and that organization. Sure. Well, let me conclude by um, expressing uh, gratitude and thanks for uh, what the two of you and your entire team um, are doing here in this series of articles. Obviously, a very, very important uh, contribution to uh, uh, the work that health system pharmacy leaders are doing. So thank you so much, and thank you for taking time to discuss your article with me. This is William Selmer. I've been speaking with Glenn Schumach and Lee Vermeulen, two members of a large team of authors that have developed the paper, National Trends in Prescription Drug Expenditures and Projections for 2019. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, 
please visit www.ajhb.org.